Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Hi, this is Tim Venable of Cornet Global. Joining me today is Erica Godin, Director, Sustainability at Ware Malcolm. She's here to talk with us about sustainable strategies for industrial buildings. Thanks, Erica, for being here. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, if you would please introduce yourself a little further to our audience. All right. So I joined Where Malcolm about eight years ago. Where Malcolm is an international design firm. We have 28 offices across the Americas, and we do architecture, interior design, civil, and we have a branding team and building measurement team as well. And I'm I'm part of the corporate section of, of Where Malcolm, and I cover sustainability for the entire company. I originated the role of director of sustainability for Where Malcolm in January of, of 2023, and it's been an exciting ride so far to get us up to speed and moving really fast in our sustainability initiatives. Excellent. Thank you. So here's my first question, Erica. In in what ways can companies establish procedures that make sustainability a consideration throughout a project lifespan? So it's really critical to get buy-in from everyone involved in the project. And we're not just talking about the project team that is getting involved when we're starting construction or design or construction of a new project. It's throughout the entire lifespan, as you mentioned, of the project We plan our buildings to last for 50 years and even interiors projects, if it's an interiors only thing, it's, you know, there are people going to renovate five, 10 years. They're not going to be doing this every year. So you want to make sure everybody's on board, start the discussion early. Everything that you might put into a project is going to be less costly if you design it in in the first place rather than try to add it in later. And as I mentioned, buy in from everyone. So you need to get the people that are going to occupy spaces, prospective tenants, things like that, to talk to you about what the needs might be in the future so that you can plan for future proofing, but also understand what they're looking for. And this goes all the way down to the maintenance people. That's a big thing related to sustainability, where if you design in all this great stuff and all these uh great technologies to reduce energy or to improve efficiency, reduce water. And then the maintenance people come in and they're like, that's not going to work for me. You know, I'm just going to flip that switch so that, you know, I can just control it myself. And they override everything that's happening. I've got great stories about the earlier days of sustainability. I have been doing this for a while. We had, um, we had a waterless urinal installed in our office because we wanted to test it before we we recommended it to our clients. So I'm a woman who doesn't use a waterless urinal ever. And I know more about urinals than any woman should ever need to know. (laughs) Because for a while, we had the professional staff at our architectural firm was doing maintenance on this urinal so that we could explain it to other people. And in fact, we discovered that it wasn't as easy as we had hoped it would be. And it did actually change how we were recommending things. But like I said, it's really important that from beginning to end, everybody's involved. And especially what we're doing now with sustainability uh, related to social and goals and and the people and wellness in spaces, you want to have the occupants also involved whenever you can so that they have buy-in from the beginning because everyone's not going to get what they want but uh, we do have workplace strategy here as well and it's been proven that if people get their say 
they're much more happier with the outcome, whether than whether anything happens or not that they suggested. So again, that's the, that's the biggest thing. Get early and everybody involved. Okay, good advice. That makes sense to me. Now I have a question about embodied carbon. We we hear about that in our in our field and embodied carbon. So thinking about materials and material choices, what what material choices can contribute to a, a lower embodied carbon industrial building? So embodied carbon is the amount of carbon emissions that go into creating the products that go into construction. Uh, I know that a lot of people know that, and then every once in a while, I'll find like groups are like, huh? So I like to start out there. Um, so materials, especially for industrial buildings, an industrial building is essentially a big open space that is surrounded by walls and a roof. So for industrial buildings, what you really need to focus on is enclosure and structure. And the enclosure and especially the slab as well are really the big components. There's a lot of the material goes there and it's primarily concrete. Standard construction for an industrial building um, is a you know, concrete walls and a concrete slab. I will say we work with a lot of developers and their statement related to sustainability is don't mess with my slab. It's like my slab is my life, that is, that is it. So, you know, what can you consider for maybe the enclosure and maybe tiny incremental changes on the kind of slab they're they're using? Because concrete is one of the biggest contributors to uh, carbon emissions, and it's something that we're we're using a lot of. So there's a lot of options for concrete, and there's more research being done every day. There's certain certain materials right now that are taking carbon, embedding it in the material, and then putting that into the concrete so it's encapsulated. Uh, there's a lot of research going on right now about having things that can absorb carbon from the air and go into the concrete. But just things that are actually been happening now and have been happening for a while is using less limestone, essentially, because that's where the that's where the primary carbon emissions are coming from in concrete. And there's a lot of different things that you can use. So there's they're called supplemental cementitious materials. Pozzolan, which is a crushed glass material, is a substitute. Um, and there's a lot of different things out there. I was at Greenbuild last year and there were, I'm sorry, Greenbuild this year. And there was a company that is essentially taking plastics, all kinds of plastics, even out of the ocean. And they're making it into a finely ground powder that they can put into the concrete. So they're getting plastic out of the ocean and putting in the concrete. And then of course, you, you always wanna start with reduction. So if there's anything you can do to reduce the thickness of your slab, then you're using less concrete and therefore less material involved there. So, and then, you know, I can go on and talk about uh, uh, different materials. There's a lot of conversations about using wood construction for buildings and that kind of thing works much better for not industrial buildings. There's a huge cost impact on an industrial building because really you were talking a very simple structure. That's that's really where the downside is there. And you can make the impact on concrete as well. So you know, heavy timber for other buildings may be a really good solution. For industrial buildings, one of the things we are looking at it for is in limited use. So maybe the office area has some heavy timber. So you're offsetting, but also giving, this ties into wellness for, for buildings, you're giving people a more pleasant environment to be in. Uh, there are industrial buildings that have been create, uh, built out of heavy timber, a CLT construction, and they're beautiful. 
but just very expensive. So right now it's really more of something that if a company wants to do that as a showpiece or a talking point, that's where I would recommend switching to heavy timber or CLT for an industrial building. Otherwise, I'd say focusing on the concrete, there's a lot of options out there and that's that's really where you can make your biggest impact on an industrial building for reducing embodied carbon. Okay, sounds good. I also wanted to ask you, Eric, about photovoltaics or, or PVs. Um, how can they positively impact sustainability goals in industrial facilities? So the best thing about photovoltaics related to industrial buildings is industrial buildings have huge roof areas where you can put in photovoltaics to convert sunlight into energy. And there's different ways that you can use that energy once it gets into the building. There's opportunities for community solar if the building itself doesn't use it. So it can be tied into the community grid. There's also opportunities to use it directly. So you're creating on-site energy for your building and you're able to use it to power whatever you need in the building. And then there's a lot of focus on electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging, which it's great for the environment in one way, but it also does, you need to charge all these electric vehicles. So you can tie a photovoltaic system on the roof into your EV charging system and actually get some of the power that way. Key, I mentioned before, early conversation. It is key if you're going to do a solar field on your roof that you design the roof to support it. If that's designed in from the beginning, it is an additional cost, but it's a minimal additional cost during construction. If you have to come back and do it later, then it's going to cost a lot more. And right now, a lot of jurisdictions are in the U.S. especially are uh, starting to require either solar ready, which means you could put solar up there in the future or some portion of the roof requiring installation of solar panels at this point. So it's great for industrial buildings. You should just be ahead of that. Like your building should be solar ready, whether the jurisdiction requires this now or it might come up with it later and then expect you to retrofit your building. Okay, so that's commonplace today. It's a trend. It's growing. It's not going away. So industrial building, people really need to think about that. Yep. Okay. So here's another topic. In what ways might the inclusion of health and wellness amenities be impactful in an industrial building? Health and wellness in an industrial building is similar to any other office space. You want to attract and retain your employees. So it used to be a warehouse job was kind of a low level, like, you know, anybody who might be, people might be desperate for a job, so they're going to go work in a warehouse. It's become a lot more sophisticated as far as technology in warehouses. You need people who are, in, you know, who are paying attention to what they're doing. It's not always just, you know, a kind of a minimum wage job. In fact, it's not a minimum wage job anymore. And companies are fighting for staff. So if you've got a better, you know, if you're paying the same amount of money, what is the, the next level up? What is going to get someone to come to work in your building as opposed to someone else's building? And that's where the health and wellness things come in. Now, a lot of industrial buildings are developer driven. So they're spec buildings. And what the developers can do is they can build in some things that are relatively low cost. But when tenants are looking for spaces, it's not something they need to do themselves. So potentially putting in an outdoor area for eating. And it might just be a concrete pad off the office area, but at least someone, you know, you can use that and set up a few tables. Having a walking path that goes through the site so people can get out during lunchtime and, and you know, get some exercise. Again, low cost in initial construction, but if that gets someone to lease your building faster, then 
you know, that way more pays for itself in rent that's happening there. And then when you get people that are either doing build to suit or the tenant comes in during during construction and you're building potentially a large a larger office space inside. Um, again, back to the attraction and retention, you've got things inside the building that um, will get people to want to come to work in your space. And these can be, again, they don't have to be high cost items, but you can set up, set up a little space for a wellness room um, or prayer rooms or just private areas where people can recharge during the day for whatever reason they, they need to. That's that little extra boost of, all right, I'm going to go work there because they can accommodate my needs instead of like, I'm going to work someplace where, no, you know, they obviously don't care about, about the people. Okay. That makes perfect sense. Now, my next question sort of ties in with your early point about thinking through things carefully at the start of a big project or a plan. So what measures can be taken to facilitate meeting sustainability targets in the design of an industrial building? And are there targets or metrics to consider? So ideally, you think about what you want to do, again, from the beginning. And the best way to make an impact in sustainability is to start with a baseline and then reduce from there. So you have something that you're looking at and you're like, okay, we started at X. If we do these few things that we can get to Y and that that's better. If you just start throwing things in, you know, you might be making a difference and or you might not be making a difference. So doing a um, whole building life cycle assessment at the beginning of your project that sets your embodied carbon targets and then continually updating it during the, the design where you can come up with options and things like that where you might be reducing your embodied carbon. You have some place you started and then you have some place that you're, en you're ending. Um, same thing with energy use. If you start with you know, doing a baseline of what the building could be, and then you start looking at energy reduction, you have at the end, you can say, oh, look, we, you know, we reduced this percentage in energy or in embodied carbon. And the great thing about that, about the measurement is not only its impact on sustainability, but also the story that you can tell at the end. Again, you're talking about developers, developer-driven spec building. How are they gonna get tenants in? Our building uses X less energy or our building is set up to use less energy. Our building had less embodied carbon in, in its construction. What's happening a lot these days is all the conversation about ESG, environmental, global, social, I mix those up, but environmental, social uh, governance, people are reporting on that and they have to report up to their investors. And if you have these characteristics already in your building, that just flows right into your ESG reporting and um, you know looks better to your investors and then looks better to uh, prospective tenants. So another thing that you can consider for metrics is there are a lot of green building certifications out there. And while they can be expensive, if you can build them in, the best thing again about that is at the end, you have a third party certified document that says you did what you said you were gonna do. And that besides helping the ESG, it helps keep the entire project team on target. That's, so I'm not pushing certifications, but I will say it's a lot easier to end up with, you end up with a more sustainable end product if you've got those targets that you're going for that, you know, that whatever certification you're using that it says you needed to do this. And that way, when someone comes back with, oh, we're going to have to value engineer, let's take, you know, take the solar array out. It's like, well, we were getting some points for that. Maybe we can consider something else. So I think that, you know, that is the reason or my main reason for suggesting certifications is, is keeping everybody on the same, on the same track. Mm -hmm. Sure. 
excellent framework, organizational framework, and so forth. Yep. Mm-hmm. And now, um, Erica, my last question. We haven't talked that much about waste, but I wanted to ask you this one. What is a waste diversion plan and why is it so important? So waste diversion plan is how you're going to not send any of the construction waste or demolition waste, depending on what you're doing, to a landfill. And the objective would be 0% goes to landfill, where it's essentially, it's just trash. Um, We're not quite there yet, but there are a lot of options for uh, reuse and recycling. And really what's going on is, so sustainability, which is the the overall term for uh, that we're using these days, it it means sustain. We want to maintain the world where it's at. Um, and not not completely destroy it. But now that we've kind of got a grip on that, what we're starting to look at is regenerative design and circularity. So in that case, regenerative, it's putting back. Can we leave the world a better place when we're done with this construction project than we started with? And then circularity is essentially the ultimate in reuse. So Nothing gets ever thrown away. It gets reused in some way. That is really beneficial because if you don't have to create something new, there's no extraction. There's no new material creation. So with diversion, what you want to look for is what can be reused in its current state. If you're doing demolition, can I take that door and then reuse it in the future project or even give it to someone else to be reused? And if you're doing, you know, again, industrial buildings tend to be ground up, you know, new, there's a lot of new industrial going on here. So you might not have the demolition side, but you are going to be digging. So you're, you know, you're modifying the site. Can you use whatever you took from one area and put it somewhere else? If you have some debris, can you can you use that in your, your fill for um, modifying the site? Can you, you know, however you can use things on site that were on site and reuse them, that's the ideal. Next level is recycling. So anything that comes out of, of the construction process whether it's packaging or excess material of some kind, how can that be reused or how could that be recycled? Is it a material that, you know, is it plastic that can go back into the stream or is it something that can go back to the manufacturer if you had a lot of excess of something so they can reuse it in their manufacturing process? So that's what you're looking for um, with waste diversion is nothing should be trash. The ultimate goal is nothing is just trash. Everything should be reused. Okay. Wow. Well, I'm I got on my soapbox there a little bit. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's a great way to wrap up our conversation. I was really impressed with the concept of regenerative and circularity. I mean, the world needs that desperately. So, you know, corporate real estate and the built environment can make a big, uh, a big impact in, in that area, as you, as you mentioned. So again, Erica, thank you so much for talking with Cornet Global today and sharing these very helpful insights with us. We, we're appreciative of it. Well, again, thank you for having me. This was fun. As as you can tell, I love talking sustainability. So if you want to regroup on this conversation anytime, on or off camera, I'm happy to do that. (laughs) Thank you. I think I'll take you up on that. I appreciate it. Take care now. (laughs) Thank you. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.